Welcome to the Think Theism Podcast. of Reformation Month. Uh, as most of you know, this is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of that church in Germany and creating a giant problem. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Specifically, though, um, we are going to talk about what happened somewhat after Martin Luther, after the Refor- or you know, kind of during the Reformation, um, we started to have a split. Obviously, the Protestants split from the Catholic Church, and then the Protestants split a thousand times. And some of the big issues that this is about are free will, salvation, God's sovereignty. Um, and specifically in Protestantism, we have this question of Calvinism. So remember, Calvin was kind of the second generation after Luther. So we have Calvinism. Um, then there was a counter, a counter-reformer in the Catholic Church called Luis Molina, who had a opposing position that was called Molinism, was and is called Molinism. Um, and then, of course, there's an additional view called Arminianism, which we aren't explicitly talking about today. But at the very beginning of the Reformation, Luther wrote this to Erasmus, who is one of the, one of the counter-reformers in the Catholic Church and probably the most well-thought-of scholar in the Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation. He wrote to, Ara- to Erasmus, Moreover, I praise and commend you highly for this also, that unlike all the rest, you alone have attacked me or have attacked the real issue, the essence of the matter in dispute, and have not wearied me with irrelevancies about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and such like trifles, for trifles they are rather than basic issues, with which almost everyone hitherto has gone hunting for me without success." Specifically, Erasmus is challenging Luther on the question of free will. So Luther wrote a book that's very famous called On the Bondage of the Will, and then Erasmus wrote a book called On the Freedom of the Will. And so this is one of the issues that we're going to talk about today. It's one of the kind of main debates in Protestantism between the Calvinists and the Arminians and the like three or four Molinists that exist in the world. Obviously, this is also a bone of contention between some Protestants and Catholics as well, which is kind of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Before we get to that, to that though, I'd like uh, Zach and Colin to introduce themselves so that you can learn a little bit about who they are and the views that they are going to be kind of defending today. So my name is Zach Lawson. I am a first-year master's student in biomedical engineering. I've been here since 2013 because I did my undergraduate here as well. That's basically what I do. You may have noticed that I moderated the past two panels. I'm not doing that today. Today I'm going to take the gloves off and show Colin what's what. So. <laughs> my name is Colin Moffitt. I'm a uh, super senior urban and regional planning major here at Texas A&M. I'll be graduating this semester and going on to uh, be a, hopefully a chaplain in the Army. Um, and I am a very, I love Ratio Christi. I've been an officer in it since the beginning of the semester. So, and I will be representing the uh, biblical view, which is Calvinism. And uh, Where would you guys like to jump off? Would you like to first give a description of the view that you're holding, or would you like to start with maybe looking at um, some of the key questions of contention? I think we should identify the questions first so that people can understand the answers. Okay, so there are three or four key issues that we're going to talk about today. So one of them is going to be, are human beings free? And most importantly, what does that actually mean? The second one is going to be, what does it mean for God to be sovereign? And how does that interact with human free will? And lastly, we'll probably have to talk about some epistemology, some knowledge, uh, some theories of knowledge, talk about what does God know and how does he know it. Maybe we should start with uh, free will. Colin. Is the will bound? (laughs) I would say the answer to that is yes. Um, And I have a selection from chapter 9 of the London Baptist Confession. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation, so as to a natural man being altogether averse from that good, and dead in sin, not able by his own strength to convert himself or prepare himself thereunto. 
Um, so I believe that man was created with the ability to, or I'm sorry, with a free will in the sense that Adam could have chosen either good things or bad things, things that are spiritually pleasing to God or things that were not spiritually pleasing to God. But again, he could choose things that are not spiritually pleasing to God and therefore the ability to, it was unstable free will, so to speak. It was able to be lost. And so upon the uh, consumption of the fruit, we have the sin of rebellion against God in which man becomes enslaved to sin, and that uh, Adam takes on a sin nature, and that sin nature is then imputed into all of his offspring, uh, which is the rest of humanity. Essentially, mankind's free will is constrained by sin. Uh, his nature constrains the desires of his heart, and therefore he is unable to desire certain things. Um, and so I would say that free will is limited in that sense. What says Molina? To introduce a little bit of terminology, there are uh, basically two big views of free will, uh, particularly among Christians. So the first one would be what's called libertarian free will, and the other one is what's called compatibilistic free will. And sometimes we can equivocate because some people will say that you have free will, um, but they may mean it in a compatibilist sense, uh, whereas the other person means it in a libertarian sense. So to be very explicit, a compatibilist says that whatever we mean by free will— it's compatible with causal determinism. So that means you can be determined to do whatever it is that you end up doing, and yet in that instance it can still be truly called a free act. Whereas libertarians would say that in addition to ending the Fed, the uh, – sorry, that's a bad <laughs> uh, Libertarians would say that whatever free will means, it's not compatible with determinism. So if the causal situation that you're in necessitates that you do perform a certain action, that action – cannot possibly be free. In order for an action to be free, there's a sufficient con- or a necessary condition called the principle of alternate possibilities, which means that you could have done otherwise uh, in that circumstance. So Molina says that Molina actually agrees a lot with what Protestantism would say regarding the nature of man in that sin definitely has a major effect and definitely constrains what uh, human beings are able to do. Molina actually thought that human beings could only do, in their natural state, apart from grace, they could only do a range of options from the worst possible action up to nothing. Like the best thing that they could possibly do is, is, is nothing, because it's morally neutral. And anything else that they would do in their natural state would, be, would not be uh, good. However, Molina said that because God is gracious, he's given prevenient grace to a lot of people on earth, which prevenient grace just means something that is before the initiation of the creature. It's something that God does first. In virtue of that, human beings actually do have uh, the ability at some times to make choices. I don't necessarily agree with Molina on that issue, because I I actually am a little bit more Protestant than Molina is on on a lot of issues. Um, But Molina would definitely say that whatever a creature does, whether it's morally good or morally bad, he didn't have to do that. He could have done something else in, in that circumstance. And because he could have done something else in that circumstance, he's morally responsible for whatever action he chooses to do. More importantly, there are, there's biblical support for this. So I have just two short verses here. Occasionally what happens, Molina says, that there are sections in the Bible where God offers a choice to his creatures where it seems like he's genuinely giving them the option, pick between this or pick between this, and it's more or less up to you. And the classic one would be Deuteronomy 30. Uh, the full section is 30, 15 through 20, but the relevant part here is at the very beginning where God, speaking to the children of Israel, says, See here that I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you to do today by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and observing his commandments, decrees, and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you, uh, that you are entering to possess. And at the very end, it says, choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and holding fast to him. Molina says this appears to be a genuine choice. Also, in support of being morally responsible so that, you know, God's not causing you to do things, we have here, uh, do not say it was the Lord's doing that I fell away, for he does not do what he hates, and do not say it was he who led me astray, for he has no need of the sinful. It was he who created humankind in the beginning, and he left them in the power of their own free choice. And if you choose, you can keep the commandments, attack faithfully 
is a matter of your own choice, because he has placed before you fire and water, stretch out your hand for whichever you choose. And that's from Sirach 15, 11 through 17. So we have two passages in the Bible which very clearly offer uh, examples of choices that are given to human beings. So my question now for you, Colin, is, one, do you accept this compatibilist uh, view of free will that Zach is implicitly saying all Calvinists accept? And then two, do you does this mean that people aren't responsible for their determined actions? Um, I definitely agree with Zach's definition on uh, compatibilism. Um, I think that, at least as far as I, I can tell, the Bible doesn't appear to teach libertarian free will, um, or that humans perhaps possess it in the same sense that, that uh, the adherents of that view do uh, proclaim. So, and I'll offer a couple of, uh, Zach offered some verses, I'll offer some verses in response. One of, the, one of the big ones that people or advocates of determinism will turn to with regard, specifically with regard to humanity, uh, is Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. It's very, you know, he's not only saying about people, he's specifically saying about the heart. You know, God shapes the heart of man into exactly what he wants to wants, wants it to be. And then Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And I, I do have an extensive list of scriptures I could go on, but I'll, I'll cease there. To what, The second part of your question was with regard to you know, it, whether or not this actually makes God responsible for the choices of, of, the, of the creatures that he has determined. And I would say, I would say no. You know? um, I, I believe the Bible is very clear that there is no evil in God. You know, James 1.17, there's no shadow in him cast by turning. God is not like man that he should lie, you know, so on and so forth. However, I do believe that God is, is involved in all the decisions that every human makes actively. There is not a human decision that is, made, that is made that is not determined by God. And, of course, the question arises, how then is God not responsible in a direct way for the actions of those creatures. And my response to that is essentially that God is not uh, the direct actor in that situation. Instead, he is the molder, perhaps, of, of the hearts of men, of these free agents. And these free agents, and although their freedom be, might be constrained in various situations uh, in various different ways, those free agents still maintain responsibility for their actions and, and they still make real, effectual, actual choices, and simply because those things are determined does not make them any less real or, or any, make humanity any less responsible for sin or evil or anything like that. One of the biggest examples of this, I think, in Scripture is uh, Jacob's brothers, right? And, of course, I'm sure, yeah, Zach already knew I was going there. Basically, I, I, I see kind of what unfolded there. I, I do believe that God caused Jacob's brothers to, and as well as everything else that happened to Jacob in the land of Egypt, um, his being in his enslavement, uh, his false accusation of crimes and, and various things like that, all that was directly determined by God. However, it looks, it appears to be uh, the passage, of course, the passage in uh, Genesis fifty twenty. There you go. Yeah, these things that um, man meant for evil, God meant for good. And it would, it would seems to me that it'd be kind of strange to say that if God hadn't meant something in them. And it'd, it'd be also strange to say that, to make a statement like that, if God hadn't been involved in those decisions as well. For either of you, what does it mean for a person to make a choice? Just to say that someone legitimately chooses something, because that's something both of you guys are talking about. What, what does that mean? The way the libertarians say this is that you have two alternate possibilities, A or not A. Whenever an individual makes a choice, it means that the sufficient conditions for their actions are found within themselves, if, if that makes sense. Uh, whatever reasoning or whatever unction that uh, leads them to make a particular decision, it starts from within themselves, and then it manifests uh, itself into whatever action follows, uh, follows from that. What would be not a choice would be something wherein the sufficient conditions did not originate within themselves. Involuntary actions would not be choices. So if someone were to stimulate a nerve on my bicep and it causes my arm to involuntarily flex— the reason it flexed what had nothing to do with me. It was some external source that was providing the sufficient conditions for that action. So I didn't choose to do that. The argument here would be that whenever you look at the compatibilist system, the reason an individual makes a choice 
is not because the sufficient conditions originate within themselves. The sufficient conditions are actually external to themselves. God is the one that determines their nature, the circumstances, and the actual individual choice that the agent ends up choosing. I would say that um, what it means for somebody to make a choice would be that it has to be, like, basically, I, I am able to make a decision or an individual makes a decision that is free of coercion, free of external coercion, so very similar to Zach's view. However, and yes, I, I would agree that the, the sufficient conditions in order for that choice to be made must uh, must arise from within the free agent's own uh, desire, their own willingness, their own nature, whatever you want to call it, their own substantial being. I would see it as, um, for example, God is determining the nature of, of particular people, and uh, or sorry, the hearts of men, right? Each individual personality, each individual mind, each individual uh, soul or spirit, right? Um, and so in, do, in determining those things, he is also thereby determining each individual action. Now, there's, there's actually separate views on that within Calvinism. There's what you might call hyper-Calvinism, um, which takes a view that would say um, that each individual, like, um, free will choice is uh, determined to the extent that it is God actively coercing somebody to do things. That's a very minority position. Most tend to be of the opinion that um, God um, provides a sufficient like external conditions. However, the internal desire of an individual, because we have to remember that the reason anybody makes a choice is because they want to, right? Um, for example, I make real choices every day without God directly telling me to do any of those things. So like God's not putting a gun to my head and making me do the things, even though he had ordained those things to happen. So um, I think that's kind of the meat uh, of where the compatibilist view kind of, I guess, uh, is, is substantiated is this idea that God doesn't actively coerce us or force us to do anything, but he does determine those things in the same way, for example, um, like Shakespeare writes a play and a character, say Macbeth, kills, you know, who killed the king, right? We're not going to necessarily blame Shakespeare for that. We're going to blame the character who actually did the killing. And that's kind of the view that we have of this idea of God determining and setting the script, so you, uh, so to speak, man being the actors. Yeah, I think that's just a little too clever by half. On the one hand, you're saying that God ordains it so that this action will occur, but it's not against the person's will. But then you ask, why isn't it against the person's will? Oh, well, God actually determined what that will is. It almost seems like cheating because you're saying it's not against the will, but if God's in charge of the will itself, then how could it ever possibly be against it? I kind of see what you're saying. Personally, to me, it's kind of a, a moot point. If God's determination of what that will is, is, is false, then that doesn't actually change the implication of his sovereignty, if that makes sense. For example, in the Molinist view, in a way, God chose, of, you know, he has a set of possible worlds, and then he has a set of feasible worlds, you know, in which he chooses to actuate. If God is, chooses a, fe- a particular feasible world, say feasible world A, and actuates that world, then I fail to see the difference in saying that God is not responsible for everything in that same sense, in that feasible world, um, all the evil actions, all the, you know, he, he brought about the exact conditions. So in that point, that's where I would see the relevancy is kind of neither on either side. Okay, so before we get deep into the possible world semantics, <laughs> let's, uh, I, w- I want to kind of summarize where we've gotten so far. So uh, we've t- we're talking about free will. Zach says, as a Molinist, that human beings have a libertarian free will, which means that they can make legitimate choices wherein the human being provides the sufficient conditions for the outcome of the choice. And that to some extent, God can't force that person to freely choose option A over option B. On the other hand, Collins says that as a Calvinist, uh, we have a, a type of free will that is compatible with us also being determined such that the the outcome of the choices that we make, um, the sufficient conditions for those is not within ourselves, but it's it's actually God. And so God can cause us to freely choose whatever thing he wants, freely in the compatibilist sense. My next, next set of questions then are, how does this impact salvation? What, what does this mean in the scope of Christianity? Yeah, I think this is actually... Uh to, for me personally, one of the biggest and most important uh, areas to to understand and to study, because this, when it comes to salvation, obviously that is how we 
enter into relationship with God, how we are justified, how we are come to to know Him, and there's few few more important things in human life other than that. I believe, of course, the Calvinist view is that God has, before the foundation of the world, elected a certain people individually, not like as a group, but He orchestrates everything in cor- in, in creation in order to bring those people to salvation and saving faith in Him. And it is determined before God made a decision, a, an actual free will decision about who He would elect unto salvation. I believe, and that is, uh, and that is why we have perseverance of the saints in Calvinism. Why we believe that salvation can never be lost. We believe it can never be lost because it was never of humanity to begin with. It was always of God. What do you think, Zach? So I, I actually think uh, I'm going to go against the the question because. In order to understand the Molinist analysis of these issues like predestination, providence, and, and, and whatnot, I think we need to understand a very key element in Molinism called middle knowledge, mm, um, yes. which somehow, Agreed. I don't know how we skipped over that. Yeah. That's kind of like the <laughs> thing. It's like basic, yeah. Yeah. Traditionally, there are two views that Orthodox Christians have believed for a very long time. The first one is what's called the traditional view of providence, which means that God is he's sovereign over creation. There's nothing out there that's outside of his control. He's essentially running the universe. But at the same time, there's this view that human beings are morally responsible. Uh, we have free will. We can kind of rebel against God if, that, if we so desire. And the Molinist project is, well, actually, pretty much any project of providence, so whether it's Arminianism or open theism or Calvinism, Thomism, there are a whole lot of them out there. Basically, the whole project is we need to bring these two ideas together. The deterministic solutions like Thomism and Calvinism, for example, they tend to emphasize the sovereignty wherever that seems to be incompatible with the free will thing. I'm being fair here, but they do kind of redefine free will into uh, compatibilist terms to say whatever we mean by free will, it must be compatible with determinism because we have determinism in our account of sovereignty. And then on the flip side, you have people like open theism that they take as basic that free will is libertarian. And whatever we mean by uh, sovereignty, it's got to be compatible with this this view of free will. The Molinist project is much more audacious, which says, actually, we can take free will in its strongest form and sovereignty and providence in its strongest form and bring them together. And the way that this is done is through the doctrine of omniscience. So God knows all things. Classically, leading up to Molina, there was this division uh, of God's knowledge, uh, conceptual division, not actual division that said God knows two types of things, what's called natural knowledge and what's called free knowledge. And what that means is that God knows everything about himself, he knows everything he can do, and he can know every possible way that the world could be. Then he knows that prior to creation. Then at the moment of creation, he creates the universe, and now he has what's called free knowledge. This is free knowledge that God more or less gives himself because of his free decision to create the universe. And this free knowledge contains knowledge of the actual world all things that are past, present, and future, including, most controversially, the future actions of free creatures. If you are a compatibilist, then you would say the reason God knows future free decisions is because God determined them. If you're an open theist, for example, you would say God actually doesn't know future free decisions because they are intrinsically unknowable. But Molina would agree with the Thomists and the Calvinists that actually God does know future free actions what he had in mind was that there's another layer of knowledge called middle knowledge. Middle because it's in between natural and free knowledge. And this is a little weird. It's the knowledge of what every free creature would do in any given circumstance. God knows first that uh, what any creature could do, all the possible options. But he knows that if that creature were put in that circumstance, it's impossible for the creature to make all of those decisions at once. Ultimately, he has to pick one decision and go with it, and God knows what that is. But here's the controversial part. God knows what that is before the creature is even created, or before the world is even created, or before God even decides if he wants to create a world in the first place. God just knows this intrinsically. intrinsically. So keep that in mind, that God knows what any creature would do in any circumstance. So what was the original question? (laughs) (laughs) So the, the question is, how do these views of free will affect salvation. More specifically, how do your specific systems interact with salvation? What what does that really mean? So we probably need to talk a little bit about grace. The idea is that everyone is going to agree God saves his people through grace. Uh, But the question is whether uh, the creatures can resist that grace or not. If you are an Arminian, Arminius had this view of prevenient grace, which 
By the way, a side note, there are a lot of there's a lot of shared terminology between Arminianism and Molinism. Unfortunately, Arminius did not do really good scholarship in this area, and in many ways borrowed and then totally twisted and redefined a lot of the terms. So, unfortunately, prevenient grace today means something very different than what Molina had in mind. But in Arminius's mind, human beings were brought by grace apart from their uh, sinful nature to a point of neutrality where they where they can make that free will decision: Am I going to be a Christian or not? Like an analogy would be: the God throws a little. They're drowning in the ocean, and God throws a little life raft to them and says, please take the rope, and they can say, no, I don't want the rope, and stupid stuff like that. But Molina had a much stronger view of grace, which said, the grace that God offers is, it is prevenient in the sense that it's offered before the creature does anything. But that grace is so strong that it will pull you all the way to salvation. So the strongest that Arminius's grace would do is it would pull you to neutrality, and that's it. In Molina's view, grace is going to pull you as long as you don't resist it. And it's going to pull you not to a point of neutrality, but all the way to salvation, uh, all the way to the point of regeneration where God will regenerate your heart supernaturally. So where does free will come into play? Every time that God draws an individual, they have a free will choice. They can either do nothing or they can resist. God will bring them into another circumstance, another grace circumstance of grace, and they can resist or they can do nothing. And then there's another one. And basically all the way up to the moment of regeneration. So free will here is that you're never pulled towards God against your will. And you're also never agreeing with God, yeah, I'm going to go along with this. Any good work that you do is the Spirit moving through you. So Molina was really a lot more Protestant than a lot of modern Protestants, honestly, on this issue. In contrast, the resistibility of God's grace is one of the hallmarks of Calvinistic theology, and that is that it, we believe in irresistible grace. We believe that God's grace is so perfect and so heart-satisfying to the human being that it cannot possibly be resisted. It would be like resisting the greatest possible desire that you could ever be made aware of. Because of that, because it's because we were created by God to know God uh, for his own glory, once his grace is made manifest or apparent to us, it is impossible for it to be resisted, not because God coerces us into accepting it or making it effectual upon ourselves, but because we genuinely, freely desire it so much. The problem is is that um, we also have this little thing called total depravity, which, of course, Molina uh, disagreed with in the sense that he didn't believe that uh, humanity was so depraved to the extent that he could never freely choose God. And that is exactly what Calvin taught. Uh, Man is genuinely dead in sin and that he is unable to choose God freely because he never will want to choose God. Jesus in John 8, 34 through 48, I'll read a short excerpt. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. And he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Right. So, and Jesus is there, of course, talking to the Pharisees, and he's and he's saying, why? What? This is why you're not understanding what I'm saying. This is why you're not accepting the good news that I am bringing to you. And this is why the other people are, because you are of your father, the devil. Because you're you are bound by sin. Um, and so you cannot and will not accept this truth. Um, you will deny it continually until the day that you die. And this is perhaps, this p- particular passage is actually one of the most clear teachings um, of the Reformed, of, of Reformed theology in this regard, um, that it is not that uh, mankind is not free to choose God, it is that he won't choose God of his own free will. So are you saying that man is free to choose, but he can't? Choose? He won't. He won't. He does not want to choose God ever, and that's and that's because of his nature, right? His his sin nature. Um, of course, there's that uh, wonderful passage. Well, it's not so wonderful, honestly. Uh, in um, the third chapter of Romans, where where Paul quotes the Old Testament as saying, "There is no unrighteous, no not one. No one seeks God." And that's an indiscriminate passage, by the way. That's referring to every single one of us in the room, regardless of your background. That is the nature of man outside of Christ. And that's why I believe so strongly that total depravity is the biblical view because of uh, passages like this. We, we remember back to the Noahic flood. The desires of their heart are only evil continually. And there's no evidence in Scripture that would lead us to believe that the nature of man from that point in time after the flood had changed. I, I think part of the issue is most of those passages say that Man does not seek after God. But the question is, is that man in his natural state, or is that man after 
grace has been presented to him. Because I think that everyone would agree, you could even agree to a, a trivial point that if some person never is exposed to the gospel at all, they're not going to seek after God. Um, so I think the question would be, does man in his natural state always resist, and then after grace he now is enabled to fail to resist? Or is it something more along the lines of man will always resist no matter how much light that he's been given? Like, like you were saying there uh, earlier about God's grace being something that's so amazing and so desirable that it can't possibly be resisted, it seems to me that that may actually be in, uh, that may require a lower view of sin of, than what you were saying uh, just now. If man is so truly depraved that he will resist everything, even the best presentation of grace in his life could potentially be resisted. And that's exactly the Calvinist viewpoint. Say you have an unregenerate sinner, an unregenerate person who does not know God. Even if you were to present the gospel to them in the clearest of human possible terms, you know, the, within the realm of human possibility, if I were to present the gospel to them, no matter how good my presentation was, no matter how convicting, no matter how clear and concise and multimedia aids and, you know, the president's endorsing me or whatever, or maybe not endorsing me, depending on your view, but no matter what sort of authoritative presentation I provide to a human, because we have to remember we're talking about categories of natural and supernatural, right? I can only naturally know uh, as much of God as an, uh, as far as within the order of creation, right? We know that God reveals himself to, to us by our creation, or by his creation, rather. And that is, you know, we can only know him up to an extent with that sort of, um, that sort of presentation of God's character. And then the gospel is another level of that, as so long as it is presented in human terms. The, the way that you phrased it, it sounds like you were saying you can present the gospel in the best possible way that you can, but unless there is this additional thing called grace involved. So I'll formulate a specific yeah. question. In your mind, is there a distinction between grace and the gospel? The gospel is a, a conductor of grace, so to speak. It is a channel, a, no, it's okay. a channel of grace. But okay. God, I believe a sacrament, I if you will. <laughs> uh, um, no. Well, yeah. So, so yeah. there's like, there's like when, and it's a weird question because honestly, I've never been asked that, and it's not something I've thought deeply about. So my initial answer, you know, I won't. I'll have to meditate on it. Honestly, I wouldn't disjoint them. You know, one is always contained within the other. Like if you're if you're graceful to somebody, you're going to present the gospel to them. You can't present the gospel without the message of God's grace either way. Two separate entities, but no, they they both share something that couldn't be. Just yeah, separate. yeah. So so I think in in my mind, and I think also the way that Molina was thinking as well, grace is not some metaphysical separate thing that can be in situations. Certain situations can actually be in, uh, instances of grace, and I would say that hearing the gospel is something that requires like literally unmerited favor because that's something that. God did not have to—there didn't even have to be a gospel in the first place. And second, I don't think that there's any obligation that people have to hear the gospel either. In my mind, that's why there may be a little bit of a disconnect here, because grace could actually be a much bigger term, or it could encompass a lot more things than just the Holy Spirit moving uh, in your life in a supernatural way. Okay. Well, can I, yeah. can I ask a follow-up question? Yeah, go that? for it. So uh, do you believe that Jesus Christ presented the gospel to people as— was among the best presentations of the gospel, near perfect, shall we say? So, just to be pedantic, uh, <laughs> Jesus preached the kingdom of God, right? Uh, and that may not necessarily be the gospel as we mean it today, but yeah, I would agree with that. Okay. Whenever, because there are multiple multiple episodes in Scripture um, throughout the Gospels where we see, and, and of course even the, the apostles and the other um, writers of Scripture recall certain instances where Jesus specifically preached about salvation and repentance to multitudes of people, and yet many fell away. Some outright rejected his message and were like, no, you're of the devil. Other people were like indifferent towards it, at, at least, you know, and like, were like, oh, this is cool, you know, for a while, and then they just kind of fell away. Like, you know, there were like five of the people who, you know, the, the, when he fed the 5,000, for example, it's, scripture is pretty clear, like many of those people later, you know, left. It'd be hard to reconcile that because I think Jesus, it would be hard to argue to me that Jesus, anyone presented the gospel better than Jesus himself. And, and if somebody presents the gospel in, that, in those terms and yet still doesn't accept it, then to me that indicates some sort of supernatural hardening, if you will, similar to what God did in, with Pharaoh in Egypt. Okay, yeah. So there are like six different ways that this could go. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, who better to present the gospel than the gospel himself, right? Right, so, right. Exactly. Amen. 
where do I want to start on this? The, the first thing is I wouldn't equate a presentation of the gospel with the entirety of grace. I think that grace is something that can be dispensed, if you will, through multiple different arenas, Mm -hmm. and that multiple different instances can be considered grace. Mm -hmm. I would consider Jesus preaching to individuals in Galilee to be the highest form of grace, but I wouldn't say that that's the only kind of grace, and that probably isn't the end of the grace that that was given to them. And there's a whole line that we could go down on what's called congruent grace, which is to say that the grace that God gives to his elect are the ones that are congruent with them being saved. And grace can be given to other people, and it's incongruent with them, and they're not saved. I would say, like, Peter was given congruent grace, or let's use Paul was given congruent grace. Uh, He was thrown off of his horse by Jesus himself. And that was something that, for Paul in that circumstance, he would freely be saved. I imagine a lot of people would be freely saved, but Paul in particular was freely saved, and that was congruent with him. These other people, perhaps giving them food and giving them fish, that can bring them along for a while, but they start resisting again. Unless there's additional grace that's infused, then they'll fall away. But the thing is that I would say that they're morally responsible for their own falling away is, mm-hmm. is the difference uh, in, in that point. Well, I would say they are too. Yeah. I would like to bring in one interesting point here. Jesus' view, whenever people rejected him, he, w- he actually put the blame on them saying that you are the ones that are rejecting me and saying that it's actually better for other people because the, that died in their ignorance more or less. So there's a really famous passage in Matthew 11 where he says here, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, for if the mighty works that had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, and also for you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? No, for you shall be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus is saying that you people are so evil and so hard-hearted that you are rejecting my works. And you're so evil that even Sodom and Gomorrah, which is like, you know, the, the poster child for evil, they're going to have it better because even those people, as backwards as they were, if they heard my, you know, really bomb presentation of the kingdom of God, they would have converted. To summarize, what I'm getting at is that it seems like Jesus is saying the difference is not in the presentation, it's in the people that are, that are hearing it. I would agree in a sense, uh, in the sense that it is when God's elect hear the gospel at the appointed time that they will freely choose God. And the reason for that is the changing of nature that happens upon conversion. I believe God actually does change their nature. You're no longer children of wrath, but rather you are given a new nature, right, as the Bible says. And so people of a certain nature will do things of a certain type. If you're a dead person and your nature is deadness, there are certain things you cannot do, like live. If you are, however, in the spiritual sense, given a new nature that allows you to do things like kind of like Adam did. With direct applicability to that passage, I do not think that—and there are actually several. I'll, I'll uh, give uh, great credit to the Molinist perspective on this particular point. There are several times in Scripture when the counterfactuals of creaturely freedom are clearly presented, even though, yes, God's prescriptive will is for you to repent of your sins, you know, the de- his determination— in a sense, is that you won't, right? Because unless he gives you a nature or gives you a new heart that is capable of doing so, then you won't, right? But God is consistent with his character. He is going to consistently prescribe to you to do things that are good. And you see God, and I think that's a form of common grace, personally. There's two types of grace, you know. We have effectual or prevenient grace, um, and then, well, some some wouldn't equate those two. But um, if you would see you have effectual grace in which God uh, actually raises sinners from the dead. Mind you, uh, the Bible also says that it is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that actually brings a sinner to repentance, implying to me that there is a supernatural action on the part of God involved in salvation. Also, basically, there is this idea of common grace, which I'm, I think it's a really great thing uh, in the sense that God gives grace to sinners and people who blaspheme his name on a regular basis. Right? Like there are people, there are murderers out there right now that are still alive, that God could have killed instantly if he wanted to. He had every right to. Um, and, you know, there are, there are, in fact, God could kill any one of us and has every right to at any point in time um, because we're all uh, guilty of sin, right? Um, unless you're in Christ, obviously. But, like, any, any, like, unregenerate person, God could, you know, feasibly do whatever he wants with you, um, as Romans 9 is super clear on. Um, but I think with regard to counterfactuals, you have to remember that um, there is no like 
didactic teaching in Scripture that would seem to affirm the idea that because again you have you have those those texts and you have to harmonize them with um, things like Ephesians one eleven right um, you have to f- harmonize them like uh, irrevel- I'm sorry um, yeah uh, Genesis fifty twenty and and other other verses where um, especially like Proverbs nineteen twenty one. Um, many are the plans of the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You know, things like that. You have all these other texts that seem to be indicating there's some sort of divine causality behind uh, free, the actions of free agents on earth or in, in the created realm. So I think the hermeneutical approach would be to, you know, and, that, and that's kind of the conversation we're having right now is determining, you know, which side of these is actually what? Choosing. Choosing, yeah, <laughs> choosing, so to speak, of, uh, of uh, you know, which of these is correct, so. So um, it's about time to switch over to Q&A, but before we do that, I have to ask one question to attempt to trigger Zachary. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so it seems fairly obvious how God can know what creatures will do on Calvinism, right? <laughs> you can see it. Look, he's, he's already <laughs> I haven't even I haven't even got the question out yet. Disputation 52. So, <laughs> so it's, it's easy to see how God knows what free creatures, quote-unquote, free creatures will do on Calvinism because he determines what they will do. On Molinism, however, and remember this, this claim that's being made. It's actually very, very broad and very powerful. The claim is that God knows not only what every free creature will actually choose, and remember they're choosing in a libertarian sense, he will also know what any free creature would do in any circumstances that creature was placed in. Even if God never creates that creature, any logically possible creature, God knows what that creature would do in any possible set of circumstances. How on earth would God know that? Well, it's not on earth. For who are you, O man? <laughs> to speak back to God, who is he that darkens the counsel of him who created you? Okay. So, yes, let me find the, the relevant thing here. Okay. So, the way that this works is the, in, in the philosophical literature, it's called the grounding objection. And anytime you see something that's called grounding objection you should immediately be suspicious because of two reasons. First, they're, they're grounding objections to all kinds of things. One of the most popular ones besides this one is uh, the grounding objection to time, which is to say, how can we talk about future statements as being true if they haven't happened yet? What thing is there that like grounds them? And so that's why some people accept the B theory of time because they say, well, all things are real, so that's what grounds them. But the reason you should be suspicious is because Grounding objections presuppose so many metaphysically complicated ideas that are way above my pay grade to even begin to analyze that in order to understand the question itself, you have to do a whole lot of, of um, you know, research. It's one of those questions like, who created God? In order to answer that, where do you even start? You have to go all the way back to basic modality to figure out what necessity and contingency is before you can finally worm your way back to that question. So that's the first level, but you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're just dodging, aren't you? And I am. But, <laughs> but Molina's answer to this, it's, it's a little unsatisfying, but I think that it, it, it kind of has the potential to be developed into a full metaphysical theory. And what Molina said was, if you can follow the, the, the thinking here, in God's natural knowledge— and that contains all of the possible things that he can do, and all of, that's knowledge of himself and knowledge of all possibilities. So what if God thinks to himself, let's be really anthropocentric, and let's say that God thinks to himself, can I create a creature with libertarian free will? And God thinks in his mind, he comes up with a conception of what, of some given creature, and then he comes up with the conception of a creature with free will. From there, Molina says that he has a concept of an individual in, in his mind, and it's still in his natural knowledge. He just knows that this is something that's possible. In order for God to be truly omniscient, he has to know every possible thing about that conception. Let's suppose that God then asks himself, well, what would this creature do if I put him in this circumstance? Molina says that if you say that God is ignorant of what follows, that that's impious to the highest degree. It's actually a really good quote. It's his most Luther-esque quote where he says, <laughs> he says that you Thomists, you Calvinists, you determinists are 
impious to the highest degree to assert God is ignorant of what I would do by my free will. The idea is that if God truly can know that he can make a free creature, and if his omniscience completely super comprehends any possible conception of anything, then you kind of have to say that it follows in virtue of God being maximally omniscient, that he has to know what that creature would do. And the ultimate grounding for what these creatures are doing, or would do, is it's going to be, first of all, it's truly grounded in his omniscience. You ask, what makes it true that God knows this? It's that he's omniscient. And then you have to say, where does he get it? It's within his conception. So it's almost like saying that uh, God understands math because he can conceive of all possible mathematical uh, theorems and things like that. And there's an interesting paper from about two years ago. I can't pronounce the author's name, unfortunately, because they're, they're both um, German. But the paper was on Leibniz's complete concept, and it's called Complete Concept Molinism, where they take this really weird metaphysical concept that Leibniz had of a complete concept and then say, this is the kind of thing that God has in mind when he thinks of a free creature. Um, and then they define a new philosophical term called a choice function, which a choice function is something that follows from necessity of a creature having free will. Now, most people may be saying, yeah, but where in the world is any of that in the Bible? And the answer is it isn't, because you're asking an unbiblical question. I'm going to attempt to kind of wrap everything up and briefly summarize the views kind of for a jumping off point for questions. So we have Colin the Calvinist who says that human beings have a deterministic free will and human beings are saved merely and purely by the act of God, that there's no act of human will involved whatsoever. God's grace is ultimately irresistible. You have Zachary the Molinist who says that that, that grace actually is resistible. Human beings are, um, are at minimum able to opt out of salvation, so to speak, and that because you, they do have some degree of libertarian free will, and, of course, within Molinism in general, I think there's a range of, of different views on that. To briefly kick off the Q&A, um, you guys can start lining up anybody who has questions. But to briefly quick off, kick off the Q&A, what about Romans 9 um, and John 6? I think you guys both kind of have a brief little exegesis. So if you guys could provide an exegesis of those, those two passages— we can see the difference, and then any, uh, anybody else who has questions, we can start. This is actually a really good question. I'm just going to read uh, Molina's own exegesis of Romans 9. I can't find it. I'll have to find the other version of it. What do you think, Colin? Well, I could provide Dr. James White's exegesis of Romans 9, but uh, I'm sure, I'm sure uh, uh, which call Zachary is very familiar with it. But um, essentially... Um, in in like and this and this is actually a point of contention between uh, mainly between Armenians and, Cal- and Calvinists. I don't I've I've never I guess seen it as much of a point of contention between uh, Molinists and Calvinists. But I believe what we have in Romans nine is you have God speaking about um, the election of some and the sorrowful reprobation of others. I think it'd probably be helpful to just like read at least part of the passage. One of you will say to me, well, then why does God blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have right to make the same, uh, make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Uh, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of, wrath, of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, and not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Uh, Zach makes a really funny joke about, like, oh, Calvinists, uh, you, you know, your book is, like, uh, one one book short, and there's 16 chapters missing from that book or whatever. But 65 books padding uh, the book of Romans, and Romans has 15 chapters padding Romans. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, that's that's. thank you. Yeah, Romans 9 is a huge passage and is actually one of the quintessential Calvinist passage. What Paul has in view here, we have Romans 1 through 3, arguably 4, where Paul is laying out the argument for human sinfulness, right? Like, this is what natural man is like apart from God. And then you have Romans 4 through about 8, in which uh, 
Paul is laying out the plan for salvation. He's laying out grace. He's laying out justification. He's laying out the reverse, you know, to those things. Then finally he comes to the ultimate question, which is, well, if God has determined all these things, then why can we be blamed for our sin, right? Um, And essentially, Paul's argument is that, well, first of all, who are you? You know, he gives a grounding objection of his own, so to speak, saying, like, what basis do you have for asking such a question? Um, Who, like, you possess so little knowledge relative to the omniscience of God, you know, how can you be justified in asking that question? Uh, and actually, like, what kind of answer would even be satisfying to you with a question like that, given your your lack of understanding? So, um, but Paul's, I, I think, and then actually there's far better, I highly recommend everyone to go, you know, reread and look up several different, um, there are many exegetes who've, who've uh, uh, done great work with this passage. Um, but I would say that... Um, what we have here is God's um, election of some unto salvation, right? The vessels of honor, as, as um, uh, your vessels he prepared for honorable use here. And then we also have the vessels prepared for destruction, which are the reprobate. Um, and so I believe this is talking specifically about humans and their salvation and God's plan for reprobation and election. So. Let's, let's hear from one of those wonderful exegetes here. Yeah, so this yes. is Luis Molina in his book, The Concordia. Uh, this is section 7. Speaking of, in, of individual predestination and individual reprobation, he says, It is so clear from the Holy Scriptures that it cannot be denied without prejudice to the faith. For it says in Malachi 1, 2 through 3, and in Romans nine thirteen that Jacob I love, but Esau I have hated, in showing that no injustice can be charged to God on the account of the fact that he predestined some and that he reprobated others, Paul adds in Romans 9, Shall the thing formed say to the thing that formed it, Why have you made me thus? And again, in 2 Timothy 2.20, it says concerning the predestined and the reprobate, that in the great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also vessels of wood and earth. Therefore, since God is not in time, triggered, but (laughs) since God is not in time, but has been in existence from eternity, with God the eternal reprobation of some takes place, and similarly, the eternal predestination of many others takes place. Additionally, Paul adds in Romans 9, that God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will compassion on whom I have compassion. That is, I will use mercy with whomever I wish, and just as it gives me pleasure to me. Therefore, are you ready for this? Neither predestination nor reprobation is according to foreseen merits, but it leads back only to the free will of God. Honestly, I think that Molina was much closer to the Protestant view of, of election than a lot of other people. In fact, this is one issue where Calvinists and Molinists, true Molinists, can actually agree yeah. completely. Yeah, I would say we agree on pretty. So I had a question for Zach. Um, you were saying that um, God has middle knowledge, but he, but the way he has that middle knowledge is he knows all the possible outcomes. Therefore, he picked the the outcome that he wanted. In other words, you were getting saved or you're not getting saved. Wouldn't you say, therefore, that you don't have free will in your choice of salvation because your salvation is ultimately deterministic, not... No, so, so there's a difference here. So Molina says that ultimately the reason that you're saved has to go back to the free decision of God to create you because God has a decision. He can choose to create you in uh, circumstances where you're saved. He can create you in circumstances where you're lost, or he can choose not to create you at all. So ultimately the reason any person is saved or reprobate or non-existent comes back to that free decision to create. But the issue is that um, it's not deterministic because the causal chain is broken along the ways. If you're a determinist, if it's truly deterministic, you can trace an entire uh, chain of causes from the moment of creation all the way down to your salvation, and each individual action follows by necessity. But that's not the case on uh, Molinism. Molina's saying that God can create free creatures, and whenever you are in that free circumstance, all the choices that are within your nature as a human being are open to you. And so there's nothing about the previous circumstances that necessitate your action. So there's a break in the causal chain. So that's why it's not deterministic. So my question is for Colin. Um, what would the Calvinists do with 1 Timothy chapter 2? Uh, the first part, it's, ta- it's talking about... Um, praying basically for all people and in verse three it says for this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our 
uh, side of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator, goes on, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So both in dealing with the elect and also um, verse 4 seems to indicate that we do have free will. Um, so... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think this is a, this is an important passage, and it's one that I'll I'll do my best to kind of summarize the work of scholarship Reformed theologians have done on this particular verse. And the way we view this passage is that uh, first of all, like we do believe that prayer, like it's kind of like that whole prayer actually works. You know, we do make actual free decisions. God does actually hear our prayers and respond to them. But it, even though those things are determined, with regard to the extent of salvation, we do believe that Christ death was effectual and I'm sorry was effectual for the elect and or was limited to the the sins of the elect. I believe that this is the conditional all that that is so very often used in the Greek text. So you have two you have different words for the word all, the words that are translated as word all. You have cosmos, which literally means like literally everything, and then you have um various forms of that word that are uh, limited in their scope but still mean all in the English language. So like ethnos, all nations, right? So in the same sense that Paul's using this word all, and there are several other passages where, you know, salvation is, well, the gospel will be brought to all nations. Obviously, this, not every person is going to be saved. There are other passages in the scripture that teach that. But in this particular passage, I think what we have in view here is, again, the conditional all, all of the elect are going to be saved, and people from all nations are going to be saved and hear the gospel. That's been the Reformed uh, teaching. There's various viewpoints. You have also, like, four-point Calvinists, so on and so forth, who would see things differently. So this is not the only interpretation of this passage, but I think uh, I think what's important to remember about this passage is that study of the original language is important here, and also the context of, of the passage as well, reading the first chapters. Just because I'm curious as to what you have to say, uh, could God make uh, creatures with libertarian free will? Could God make creatures libertarian free will? Yes, I think that God feasibly could make creatures with libertarian free will. I think that's logically possible, and I think that falls within the realm of all possibilities. However, I think that would be ultimately not glorifying to him. You minimize God's glory when you give this sort of self-sovereignty to man and take it away from God. Because then the glory of all the decisions, all of the salvation, of everything like that, is no longer given to God. And in fact, you can't even attribute like the distinction between the saved and the damned to God, because then it's just a natural result of free choice. And if you search the scriptures, the reason why God does anything, the reason why God creates humanity, and the very function which we are made to fulfill is his self-exaltation and his glorification. God's going to do what is pleasing to him, and ultimately, and and this goes back to like God's nature of who he is. If you're a perfect being, the best thing that you can do is share yourself with people. Like you, you, the, the best thing you can do is glorify yourself because you're ultimately loving that person by doing so. Um, And so I think that's what God does with us. And so, yes, he could, but it would be outside the will of God, obviously. That's what the the point of the Calvinist argument is, and that we believe the Scripture teaches that it's not within his will to do so. And then also, I believe it would just be less glorifying. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually think Colin makes a really good point that accepting middle knowledge and being a uh, Molinist are not necessarily the same thing. It could, in fact, be the case. and And there are people like Bruce Ware who accept that God does have this knowledge, but exactly like you said, for some reason he chose to create a determined world because that glorified him best. Um, so he would have middle knowledge, but the content of middle knowledge is empty because there are no free creatures no, that he does know? No, 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 no. He, he actually has the same—so in this case, like myself and Bruce Ware, we would agree on everything about God up to the moment of creation, but whereas I would say and Molina would say that God actually decreed that— there would be free cre- libertarian free creatures. People like Bruce Ware would say he decided ultimately in his free choice to de- uh, create a world with determined creatures. And for those of you that are determinists, that's a different argument. To deny middle knowledge because you're a determinist is unnecessary. And in fact, Molina says that it would be insulting to the depth and perfection of the divine knowledge and indeed impious uh, to assert that God is ignorant of what any free creature would have done by their freedom of choice had he created them in a different circumstance. So Molina says that not only is middle knowledge a good thing, it's actually impious to deny it because you are affronting the nature of God. A maximally great and perfect being should know all things and not be ignorant of free choices. Mm-hmm.
first, Mr. Mr. Calvinist, sir, I noticed you, you uh, quoted uh, Ephesians chapter 1, favorite, uh, favorite chapter for most Calvinists that I've seen. Um, if you follow the verb tenses quite carefully there, you'll, as most Calvinists know, it says a long string of things that God causes. Uh, however, if you also follow the verb tenses in Ephesians 1.13, it switches to where now the faith and the believing is caused by the believer and not by God. I've never heard a Calvinist respond to that. Perhaps you could. Uh, Mr. Molinist, sir, a uh, nice story that you had there about the, uh, this middle knowledge. What was the word you used? Weird. Um, and... Uh, and uh, the nice little story about the chain of causes and God causing uh, circumstances. And I also noticed you didn't present any Bible passages to support that. Uh, perhaps, perhaps I was just wondering if there are any. Sure. Uh, and then a question for both of you. Um, the uh, uh, scholastics made a distinction on types of causes, and I've not heard any discussion tonight on uh, more than one types of cause. There are actually six types of causes. I will illustrate but two. Uh, if a carpenter makes a chair, okay, the carpenter caused the chair, so that the carpenter is the efficient cause, but there is such a thing as the form of a chair, and if the carpenter makes a chair, it's because there is such a thing as a chairness, a form of a chair. He did not make a table, Table is a different form, okay? So it's entirely possible, I submit to you, that there, you talked about chains of causes, that there are actually two very different types of causes. There's actually, again, I said six, but it's very possible that God caused the believer in the sense of the form of a believer, of a form of a regenerated person, but the efficient cause could be the libertarian free will of a free will agent namely the person. Well, I guess I'll take a crack at the, you know, the Ephesians question. That, that was a fantastic question, by the way. Um, yeah, I was, I'm surprised we didn't get into, like, primary causes, secondary co- secondary movers, and, like, all the, the differences between all that. Um, I, I wish, I really do wish we had more time to, like, expound on that, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll save that question for you. I'll just respond immediately, like, most immediately to the Ephesians passage. Um, I think that what you have in view in that in those in those passages um, following uh, Ephesians after one eleven essentially moving on into the uh, end of the first chapter um, is you do have a shift in focus and a shift in view on the part of the author I think um, and I think that um, within the context of what the because I think the verb form is actually really important and it's something we should follow closely and pay close attention to. However, the meaning of the words, too, is also something we need to follow closely. What we see here is uh, substantially, I see it like a change in subject, because you, you have Paul speaking on like this, the, like God's relationship to man in terms of salvation and causation, of, uh, you know, working all things to the counsel of his will. In fact, the whole first Ephesians 1 through 10, in the original Greek text, there's not actually any punctuation. You know, it's just like one long rant, and it's supposed to be kind of funny, you know, that, that Paul's like, oh, you know, bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then it's just going on for like 10 verses. Um, yeah. Yes, exactly. And, it's, it, and I think it's really cool. Um, but I think you kind of transition, uh, you know, and that's another reason that compels me to believe that the, the substance of the issue that he's actually addressing in, in the salutation of this particular letter uh, is substantively different than what he addresses later in the first chapter, beginning in verse, um, beginning in, after verse 11, rather. Um, so thanksgiving and prayer and like all the, the responsibility, you start going from descriptive to prescriptive is, what I would, is how I would answer it short, in the short form not take up all our time. The question I was asked was, it may be the case that God has mental knowledge, and it may be the case that God places people in circumstances but or to do his will, but what biblical evidence is there of anything like this? So the first one is slightly speculative, and then the second one is a little less speculative. The first one, and this is actually the one that I think is it's stronger, but it is speculative. If you truly think that Adam had free will in the garden, and you, if you're an infralapsarian, so that means that 
you believe that God allowed the fall to happen. I would say that you actually have to be a Molinist. Those two things are sufficient for sufficient to demonstrate that God placed a free a libertarian free creature in a circumstance to do his will. So if you're an infralapsarian and you think that Adam truly had free will, I think that's as close to a knockdown example as you can get. And then the second example, which is grounded in Scripture, but I think it's a little more ambiguous, Paul in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about the crucifixion of Christ, and he says that the, the truth of the crucifixion, Jesus' real uh, mission, was hidden because, as he says in 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers of this age understood that God had decreed before the ages our glory, is what he's saying. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So this is a counterfactual here, that if it were the case that the rulers knew uh, the truth of what Jesus had come to do, they wouldn't have crucified him. But we find in another exposition of that, in Acts chapter 4, verse 28, in Peter's preaching, he says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all of the peoples of Israel, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, namely crucify Jesus. So I'd say if you take these two verses together, you have an instance where Paul says that if the rulers of this world knew what was going on, they, uh, they would not have crucified him. We have uh, Peter saying that all of these peoples and rulers of this age were brought together to crucify Jesus. That's an instance where people were placed in a circumstance of ignorance so that they would do what God wanted them to do. So one last, last final question. First of all, let me commend you guys. A lot of other things you could be doing tonight and with your time. The question for the Calvinists, um, several times you used the word dead. I want you to define what you mean by the word dead and what you think the scriptures mean by the word dead. All right. Here we go. Here we go. All right. So uh, I think what we, what we have in view in terms of deadness is a sort of spiritual death, I think, that occurred in uh, the Garden of Eden. Whenever God tells Adam, if you eat the fruit, you shall surely die, this is what he had in view. He's talking about spiritual death. Because obviously, as, as soon as Adam ate the fruit, he didn't physically die, right? So there was, and unless we're going to call God a liar, then there was some sort of death involved. So I think if you look at, I'll just cite, I won't read it, but uh, Romans three ten through through uh, 18, that, that passage, of course, describing the, the deadness of man and sin, I think that's pretty much what's in view. So um, I think that kind of wraps up our Calvinism-Molinism discussion. And uh, thank you all for coming. And let's thank our, our panel members.